Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, Thank you. Thank you so much for helping my wife heal. You've taught me so much with the book Help Her Heal. Well, I want to say to Tom, you are so welcome. I want to help her heal, and more than that, I want to have you help her heal. Because, come on, what we know is the betrayal caused a lot of ruptures, and only you can redo what you need to do to make it better. You can't undo it, but you can redo it. Now, I recently got an email from a woman We'll call her Amy. And she said, you know, Carol, it is so hard to gather my thoughts, but I'm sure you can understand. There's something wrong with my brain. I'm not making good decisions. I have been married for 25 years. Right before our wedding, Tom, my husband, informed me he was addicted to porn and had been to a massage parlor. Carol, I was devastated. We had just purchased a home. I was 23, and I had no idea what this entailed. He promised, as always, that he would end all of that stuff. He promised he would stop. But over the past 25 years, I've lost count of the times that I've been able to see that he hasn't stopped. This has resulted in me being in a lot of therapy. You know, I've worked with Marsha Means 
and many, many others. But I still feel lost. And now I'm watching our daughters, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm terrified. What if they have lives like I did? They are severely lacking in relationship knowledge, and they have watched me go through the merry-go-round of life. And then she says, I have joined a group called Hope Redefined, which is my good friend, Michelle. And I really think this is helping. But in the meantime, what can I do to help my daughters heal? Is there anything he can do to help our daughters heal? He has seen and experienced all the agony I've been in, and it's like he wants to help, but he's unsure how to do that. Therefore, it looks like he's refused to help. I think it's mostly out of fear of rejection from others and his pride. Oh, he has a lot of false pride. I love him, but I don't want to live this way anymore. And I want to know, will he seek help when he realizes that he has completely lost me? I have never enforced anything in my life. This trauma is so real that I realized I need to start setting boundaries. I'm listening to your podcast. I'm listening to many others. And I am ready for a life. What would you advise? Well, Amy, the truth of the matter is that you have to, um, you don't have to do anything actually, but if you want to help your daughters, you've got to take care of yourself. That's first and foremost. And that is with intentional self-care. You've got to take care of yourself and you have to decide how can I create a life that's separate from him? Because the truth of the matter is, That's the best way to teach your daughters to take care of themselves and to know how to handle the injustices of life. This has been a horrific experience, but you can turn it around now by deciding that you're going to use it to grow stronger. So I'd ask you, Amy, what are you doing to send them positive messages that you're strong and you're resilient and you're smart and you're capable and you're persistent and you're determined and you get the message, right? You are all of those things. And what can he do? Well, he can help you to heal. But that means he has to get into good recovery first. And so only you know if you can live your life separate from him, if he's not going to be in good recovery. And if you can't, that is okay. That is your decision. But then you're going to have to create a life that's separate from him because there is no reason to put up with um, his infidelity, his porn watching, his going to massage parlors. I mean, You may not be able to control him, but you can definitely control how you react and how you create your own life. Now, I know that may not be what you wanted to hear, but that's the best thing for you. It is absolutely the best thing for your daughters. And in actuality, it's the best thing for him. When I talk to addicts who are in good recovery, they say the most helpful thing that happened to them 
while they were trying to decide if they were going to give up their addiction was when they knew their wife's bottom line. And so I'm going to ask you, what can you do that will help you take care of yourself and help him to understand the bottom line? All right. Now, I am super excited. I've been wanting this guest on my podcast for months. You know, I started hearing a couple of years ago from men that experienced a lot of trauma, and they were saying unanimously that their most favorite book was Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And I hadn't read this book, but I kept hearing about Jay Stringer. And then on my other podcast, I had Drew Boa on. And Drew talked about his good friend, Jay Stringer. And so I, I said to Drew, Drew, I do not mean to ask for favors, but any way you could get him on the show. And it just did not happen for the longest time. And then, lo and behold, I'm a coach, right? Well, I'm a therapist, but I'm a coach, and I believe in the big ask. And I'm not one who um, is embarrassed to ask several times. That sometimes is the big ask. And so I threw it out there, and they said, oh, no, he wouldn't be available for months. And I said, well, put me on the list. I want to, I want to interview him. Because what I know to be true is he has made such a difference. His book has made such a difference in the lives of so many sex addicts. It's super compelling, and it's about trauma. But more than that, what I love about it is that it's based on a multi-year research project of over 3,800 men and women sexual behavior. And the, the use of pornography, infidelity, and buying sex were their deal-breaking behaviors, right? So these men and women had compulsive, problematic sexual behavior, and they talked about their childhood trauma, they talked about their brain, and they talked about their predisposition to sex addiction. Now, Jay Stringer has an amazing background, and we're going to be talking about that. He um, has a master's in counseling and psychology, and he received postgraduate training after, under Dr. Dan Allender. He was a, he was a senior fellow at the Allender Center. So this man knows what he's doing. And on top of that, he decided to research people because we know that the best way to figure out the lives of people, what worked and what didn't, is if we do research. The second thing that I know to be true is that when we help men look at their trauma, and perhaps even look at the trauma reenactment that occurs later on in life, it is a powerful way for them to stop judging themselves and to start having understanding of what happened to them and how how they dealt with it and how it manifested into other issues. So I am really looking forward to him joining the call. Um, He's going to talk about his survey. He's going to talk about what he found out. He's going to talk about, you know, 
how the book has helped hundreds of thousands of people to heal. Because remember, the book is called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And you know, there's many a program that says it's openness, brokenness, and humility that creates healing. And so um, all about figuring out how addicts can help themselves heal, because you know me, not only do I want them to heal, but I want their families to heal. This is a relationship issue. It's not just about the addict. It's about everybody that he or she has affected on their life journey. So I am jazzed about talking with Jay Stringer. His website is sexualbehavioracessment.com. And it's j-stringer.com. Two different websites, just like me. You probably know this, but I have a website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. It's there you can find online courses for help or heal and and post-traumatic growth for partners. And, And then if you want to go to something motivational where you hear the good stuff, not necessarily centered around addiction, you can go to carolthecoach.com, which is my second website and certainly an important one. Because I'm all about, one, healing the wounds, and two, actualizing potential. That's what 12-step programs are all about. That's what recovery is all about. It is about healing the wounds. And so... Be thinking about it, no matter where you are in your recovery, be thinking about what would you like to do after you heal the wounds to give back and to make a difference in the world. All right. I am sure that Dr. Jay Stringer has something to say about that. So, Jay Stringer, thank you so much for doing this interview. I am so jazzed about hearing more about your book and letting the world know all the incredible research that you did. How are you tonight? Carol, thank you for having me on your show. I am I'm well. Uh, my family recently moved to New York City uh, from Seattle, so we are definitely adjusting uh, to a new city. And how's that city in terms of COVID? What are you dealing with? Uh, we are doing pretty well. I mean, for a while, uh, New York City was under 1% positivity rate, and I believe it's up to about 4%, somewhere in that range. But uh, they have done a great job with it so far. Excellent. Well, I, you, I, you didn't get to hear the beginning of the show, but I told my listening audience that about a year and a half ago, I started hearing about unwanted and I saw all these men who had difficulty sharing their feelings, talking about your book and how it touched them, how it helped them to understand their abuse, how it helped them to understand their wounding, and what a difference it made in their life. So I want you to tell our listening audience, what made you decide to write this book? Uh, you know, I'd say uh, two reasons to, is 
The first is that, you know, as a, I, I am a psychotherapist, and I would say men mm-hmm. and women were, were arriving in my office with little to no understanding of what freedom from unwanted sexual behavior was all about. Uh, most of the clients that I saw, I, I would put kind of in the behavioral management category where they had been told to kind of bounce their eyes, get into some type of 12-step program, uh, and, uh, you know, just try to some, – some of my clients would even slap rubber bands around their wrist. And so after, mm-hmm. you know, just a lot of years, uh, I had one client that told me, you know, Jay, after I've been having the same conversation with my 12-step group <laughs> for 15 years – I know that something isn't working. And so uh, I, I think just from a pattern recognition standpoint, I just started seeing that, you know, a lot of these men and women had very, very similar patterns of woundedness uh, that were playing out and getting reenacted in their sexual life. But there seemed to be some type of disconnection that when they thought about their uh, sexual addiction or the, the fantasies that they pursued, uh, it was almost as if those were completely disconnected from their family of origin, from their childhood wounds. And so I think part of what I began to see is that, no, we actually, if we want to heal, we have to go back to some of those original places of heartache and woundedness uh, where something mm-hmm. of our sexual story was hijacked. Uh, long before we became an addict. Well, and I'm sure you did research on 3,800 men and women who described compulsive problematic sexual behavior, and not every one of them has brokenness and, and sexual woundedness from their past, but most of them do. And mm-hmm. that's what your research shows, is it not? Yes. So, uh, you know, I I use the phrase unwanted sexual behavior Uh, and not to say Mm -hmm. that I don't think that sexual addiction exists, but I think if you really begin to ask the majority of people uh, alive today, if they have any dimension of their life that at the end of the day, they wish was not part of it. So that could be, you know, a sexual fantasy that emerges while they're having sex with a partner Uh, That could be uh, some intrusive thought from something long ago that they have tried for a really long time to get rid of, uh, or something Mm -hmm. like compulsive uh, pornography use or infidelity. I think at the end of the day, most people would admit to a sense of, yeah, there's a dimension of my life that is unwanted. Uh, But as I, you know, kind of spoke briefly about behavioral management, I would say the more progressive approach is is something that's more akin to shame management, where, you know, the primary Mm -hmm. problem that they see is, like, if we could just remove some of the shame and stigma associated with people's sexual choices, then they would be free. And it turns out that that doesn't really work either. And so part of what my research looked at was how does a person's story, like the relationship that they have with their moms and their dads, uh, formative adverse childhood experiences like bullying or sexual abuse, uh, how do those stories actually set up and tee up uh, a life of compulsive sexual behavior? And so my research looked at, you know, the past. It looked at difficulties in the present, like, you know, was someone struggling with a lack of purpose in their career? Did they feel like their needs weren't met? 
uh, in their marriage. Uh, and then I looked at something that we can talk further about, uh, but I really looked further into the arousal template. So what were people actually putting into the Internet uh, when they searched for porn or what type of an affair that they sought out? And so we kind of compiled all that data together. And what I can tell you is that uh, what we learned was that unwanted sexual behavior uh, is a roadmap to healing, not necessarily a life sentence to sexual shame or addiction. And for a lot of my clients and a lot of people, that's a really, really refreshing paradigm because it helps us to see that you know, these unwanted sexual behaviors that we're all dealing with uh, have the potential to put us on the path to healing rather than something that we just feel like this is inevitably going to be a problem in our life that we need to manage for the rest of our life going forward. Uh, and so that's what the research found is that, uh, you know, our sexual fantasies and the sexual behaviors that we pursue could be shaped, if not fully predicted, uh, based on our story. And that story could be something in the past but it could also be something in the present as well. Well, that's interesting. And so how did you get the 3,800 responses that you did? So, uh, so I, I worked with uh, a number of organizations that were involved uh, with trying to help people find freedom from compulsive pornography mm -hmm. use, infidelity. So, I uh, worked with a number of uh, CSATs, Certified Sex Addiction Therapists around the country. I uh, worked with some leading organizations like uh, Fight the New Drug, Covenant Eyes, that were all uh, trying to understand, you know, how do people become addicted? And so I uh, reached out to a lot of that demographic and uh, compiled the data. I had a team at New York University handle the analytics associated with it. And so, yeah, I was uh, very pleasantly <laughs> surprised. I talked to a couple leaders in the field, and they said, you know, if you can get 500 respondents, this would be a pretty significant study. Uh, but was fortunate enough to get almost 4,000 men and women uh, to respond. Yeah, and I love the fact that you call it unwanted sexual behavior because, you know, when we know better, we do better. And I'm a CSAT, and we still call it sexual addiction. And the truth of the matter is it feels very compulsive, and it feels unmanageable, and it feels um, progressively like it gets worse, and all those things are true. But like you said, I'm also a coach as well as a mental health therapist of 40 years, and what I believe is when somebody gets to a certain point in their recovery, they begin to take their life to the next level, which means they give back, they impart their wisdom, and they really make a difference in the world. And it no longer becomes, how do I manage my unwanted sexual behavior? It becomes, how can I teach others how to become free from this and take their life to the next level? And so unwanted sexual behavior fits that paradigm a lot better than sex addiction does. I think so too. Uh, and and I, I mean, I, I mean, we both know that so many people have a lot of denial when they are first starting out with regard to how much of a problem with this. But what I found really across the country and really around the world is I get emails all the time from people just being genuinely curious 
about their sexual compulsivity. So they ask about their porn searches. They say, you know, why is it that this particular porn search or this particular scene from childhood or this type of fantasy keeps coming to my mind virtually any time I'm alone. And so I think that that's really what the addiction framework has largely missed for people is that once you're working pretty much exclusively within a pathology-based model, uh, you don't find that many people are very curious to learn more because it's almost like every step of learning more, there's, <laughs> there's more pain or there's, there's more pathology to find. And so I found that when, you know, when people are really thinking about it as an unwanted form in, in their own life, there actually is a lot more power. Uh, there's a lot more curiosity. There's a lot more kindness to be able to understand some of the formative stories that got them to that place to begin with. And, you know, just to begin this journey for people from the standpoint of kindness and curiosity, I think is such a game changer with regard to developing uh, integrity in people, but also uh, realizing that they don't need to assassinate their desire, that the desire is not necessarily an awful thing that they need to overcome, that their desire uh, may have gone awry at certain points in their life, but what they're recovering is really the sense of beauty, the sense of desire uh, that something of their addiction has attempted to steal from them. And so uh, could not agree more that when you have a different approach to this, uh, you find that people are a lot more energized to give back uh, and to make a lot more movement with their life. Well, and let's face it, we know how difficult it is to talk about sex anyway. Our families didn't role model healthy behaviors. <laughs> People don't talk about it. They may enact it, but they don't talk about it. And then if you add shame and pain and trauma and drama to it, um, they either run from it or they reenact it in a way where they feel like they have some control. And you and I both know it doesn't feel like control then. They're trying to have control, but it becomes very out of control. So let's talk a little bit about sexual abuse because you and I both know what trauma reenactment is, and that's oftentimes when there has been trauma in one's childhood. And on some level, they they choose um, on an unconscious level to reenact that until they figure out what that means to them. So what did your research show about sexual abuse specifically and how people coped with it? Sure. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think it, when, we, when we talk about sexual abuse, I know sometimes, at least when I heard this phrase before I went to uh, grad school, I, I always thought mm-hmm. about like a white, you know, some white van with a pedophile that was driving around trying to abduct children. Uh, but the reality mm-hmm. is that sexual abuse happens on a spectrum. So there are certainly people who are abducted. Uh, but the far, far more common experience for most people is that uh, the person who sexually abused them was more often than not someone who was in very close proximity uh, or trust to their family. So more than likely it was uh, a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, uh, a, a priest, a pastor, uh, a camp counselor. So what I want you to hear in that is that many times it is the foundation of trust 
that sets up the process for sexual abuse. And so sexual abuse could be, you know, just very violent, uh, degrading sexual acts that were done to you over many years. Uh, but sexual abuse could also be something like the introduction to pornography. It could be, you know, an experience that you had with someone where you said, that was a little bit strange, that was kind of weird, how do I even talk about that? And so I think if you begin to kind of understand that sexual abuse happens on a spectrum, uh, that should really invite you to kind of consider were some of those first initial sexual experiences that you had in your life something that you gave your full enthusiastic consent to, or was there something that was done to you, even if it was something maybe as simple as being introduced to pornography, that if you step back and look at it, you're saying, wait a minute, I, I really didn't have much of a choice in that. Uh, someone introduced me to it. So uh, part of what my research found was that men and women who struggled the most with pornography, uh, these were people who answered fives on the Likert scale. They had sexual abuse scores that were nearly 24% uh, higher than those who did not view pornography at all. And so uh, this is a really big finding in that a lot of times when people get into addiction treatment or recovery treatment, uh, they are so interested in trying to combat their behavior. They're wanting to suppress their sexual thoughts. They're trying to get into recovery. Uh, but oftentimes, they don't ever look back into some of the places where that pain began. And so some of the core experiences of sexual abuse are that the, the first one is really connection. And uh, connection is the language of oxytocin. And so when you think about uh, you know, some of the first experiences of abuse, if abuse happens in that system of trust, more often than not, that abuser is trying to connect with you. So they might say something like, Jay, you have a really powerful arm. You should be in the NFL one day. Or, you know, uh, that dress is, is really great. Or there's something about your voice that's so compelling. And so their first initial movement uh, is one of pursuit of you. And so if you kind of think about it in terms of Dr. Patrick Carnes talks about this in his research where the majority of people struggling with sexual addiction, 77% come, report coming from a very rigid home and 87% report coming from a very disengaged home. And so if you're growing up in this family that's very rigid and yet very disengaged, when someone who is in the grooming process of sexual abuse first begins to pursue you, that's going to feel so amazingly right and amazing before it begins to feel wrong. So like one of my clients said, you know, Jay, I grew up in a very fundamentalist household where we couldn't watch TV, we couldn't play Nintendo. And so when my babysitter began bringing over uh, a Nintendo game system, uh, he had me from the get-go. And so that's often mm -hmm. what an abuser is doing is they're building connection. But then the next stage uh, is often one of pleasure. And this is often really hard to talk about when we engage sexual abuse because we know intuitively it's so wrong. 
But every abuser mm-hmm. is fundamentally working for the pleasure of the person that they're abusing. Why? Well, they want the victim to feel something of complicity within the abuse. And so, you know, if you think back to the first time that you saw pornography, the first time that you saw an erect penis, the first time that you saw breasts, your body is designed to feel arousal, to feel pleasure at something that you've never seen before. That's a natural physiological response. And so in the midst of that, what ends up happening is after there's some level of connection, some amount of pleasure, uh, the, the perpetrator might say, this is just our secret, don't tell anyone, or they might make a threat and say, if you told anybody what happened here, uh, I'm gonna ruin your family. And so what you begin to experience in your body at that point is really cortisol, which is stress. And then in the aftermath of all that has happened, uh, you feel a lot of shame, a lot of numbness. Carol, as you described, a lot of houses don't have any language to talk about sex. So how in the world Mm -hmm. are you supposed to talk about something sexually abusive nonetheless? And so what I want everybody to begin to grapple with is that sexual abuse is this really, really toxic cocktail where you have oxytocin, which is bonding. You have dopamine, which is pleasure and motivation and attention. You have stress and cortisol. And all of that begins to form your sexual template. Well, guess what happens later in life? you actually don't feel fully alive unless you're reenacting that cocktail much later. So it might look like going into a hotel bar where you strike up a conversation with someone, you feel oxytocin, you start flirting, you feel dopamine, you begin to anticipate sex, and then you commit the affair. And then afterwards, you feel a lot of stress, you feel a lot of shame. And so what have you done in the midst of that except to, or what have you done in the midst of that? Well, I would say, yes, are you, a com- are you committing an affair? Absolutely. But you are also remixing some of the formative components of your sexual abuse. And so that's one of those things where, uh, especially for people that have been in treatment for a long time without seeing many results, I would say uh, oftentimes there's some formative experiences that they're reenacting that they haven't quite healed from. Well, absolutely, and and you mentioned uh, obviously that it's that cocktail of all those things, and and we know that fundamentally that reshapes attachment or lack thereof. Can you tell our listening audience a little bit about the attachment story and the formative experiences of trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, I mean, I would go back again to Dr. Patrick Carnes' research where he, he showed that about 77% of families uh, or people struggling with compulsive sexual behavior came from families that were very rigid. So a, a rigid home uh, is one where there's a lot of rules, there's lots of regulations, um, and these parents often rule with a type of iron fist where Uh, You know, if you get a bad grade, uh, they give you a glare. Uh, Some of my clients might report some type of punishment with a belt, uh, with a rod. Uh, But it's some level of if you make a mistake in our family, uh, there's going to be some form of hell to pay. Uh, And then the other category that Patrick Carnes brings in is that family that is highly disengaged. 
Um, and so one way that I always think about it is if you go back to uh, middle school, I always think of middle school as a, as a prototype of hell on so many fronts. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you come home from school after a really difficult day, uh, did you have a mother or a father who actually noticed that there was something of sadness on your face? Uh, because good parenting will come down to a level of attunement, which is a sense of I am seeing what my child needs, uh, that if they're sad, I, I, I talk about that sadness and I engage it with them. Uh, or if they are really upset about something, I offer a level of nurture and language to help them understand their experience. But for a lot of people uh, who grow up in these rigid and disengaged family systems, uh, is that they need a way out of the system. And so, uh, again, if you are dealing with uh, a mother or a father who's very rigid, pornography uh, or compulsive sexual behavior often becomes your first way to escape it. Um, and so if your father is extremely rigid and never lets you have a choice about anything that you want, well, part of the appeal to pornography is that it gives you a place to take some of that anger and it gives you a place to be able to reestablish power. Same thing with disengagement. A lot of my clients will talk about, you know, it's, it's not so much the orgasm that they're after, uh, but oftentimes it's the search. Uh, and so for one of my clients, uh, that I was working with at something called the John School in Seattle, where I was a sex addiction therapist for the city of Seattle. Uh, one of the clients who was arrested for soliciting women in prostitution said uh, just that. He said, Jay, the, the main thing that I tried to do in Seattle is I get in my SUV and I drive around different streets, and all I'm trying to do is lock eyes with women on the streets. Um, and that's the search. That's what I do every Friday morning. Um, and then as we began to get into his family story, his attachment story, part of what we learned was that he had essentially uh, very little attachment with his mother and father. And so one of the gifts that he was given when he was in middle school was he got a Schwinn bicycle. And he said, Jay, I loved that bike. And I said, tell me what you loved about it. And he said, well, I used to cruise around my neighborhood trying to lock eyes with girls in my class and my friend's moms. And he said, springtime or summer was always the best time to cruise. And I said, why was that? And he mm -hmm. said, it's because that's when people were throwing barbecues and I would get invited over for dinner. Um, and so for him, that was part of what he had to grapple with, is that his attachment story, uh, he didn't, he learned that his family system was not the primary place to develop an attachment. He needed to go cruising around for it. And that behavior that began innocent as a middle schooler eventually grew into a very, um, problematic sexual behavior uh, where he was, uh, you know, sexually exploiting people for his own gain. And so for him, a lot of his healing came from understanding his attachment story. And this is where, you know, Gabor Mate uh, says that emotional isolation, powerlessness, and stress are exactly the conditions that create the neurobiology of addiction. And uh, that's what so many of us really have to grapple with is when we look back to our family of origin, when we look back to our adverse childhood experiences, 
there's a lot of emotional isolation, a lot of powerlessness in a lot of families, um, and profound, profound amounts of stress. And what ends up happening is that early on in our life, we learn that, you know, pornography, uh, promiscuity, begin to help us feel something of connection, uh, but eventually it grows into a life problem uh, that we cannot manage any further. And so I think my invitation to people in this book is instead of just trying to manage your sexual life, instead of just trying to see yourself as exclusively powerless, uh, can you also go back to some of those formative places in your life where there was a lot of pain, there was a lot of woundedness, and there was a lot of powerlessness? And can you begin to grieve some of those uh, experiences? So, uh, well, yeah, I'll leave it there. You know, yeah, you know, one of the things that we both know from Dr. Patrick Carnes is that he actually said because of that attachment issue, that if you grew up in that rigid, disengaged family, there was oftentimes neglect. And mm-hmm. there was no emotional nurturing. And as a result, that was much more a predisposition to any kind of addiction, as well as that lost sense of self and soul. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. you've got research that substantiates that. And I wanted to ask you, as, as difficult, as this could be for some people to hear, I want you to talk a little bit about sexual fantasies and unwanted behaviors being the roadmap to healing. I mean, once again, we're taking some unwanted sexual behavior and we're saying that can actually lead you out into a world of liberation and self-esteem. So talk a little bit about front porch technologies and commas common fantasies for men and women. Great. Yeah, so, I mean, part of what I want to say from the outset is this is, this is potentially a very counterintuitive approach, uh, but I would just say stay with me. Um, so part of this thinking is that the, the symptom is often the solution in uh, certain frameworks in psychology. So an example of this would be if I have a bad back, uh, there's a lot of ways to treat it. I could take a lot of ibuprofen, I could drink a gin and tonic, or I could begin to listen to my back and say, you know, this bad back is actually trying to get my attention about a car accident that I went through a long time ago that I jury-rigged the solution for. And so just that sense of could it be that something of the keys to your freedom are embedded in the sexual fantasies itself? Well, most of us are too busy trying to suppress our sexual life, get rid of it, uh, than actually being curious. And so part of what I invite my clients into Uh, is to think about their sexual life as a house. And so just to kind of imagine it's late in the evening and you hear that familiar knock of fantasy come to your door and just kind of that question of what are you going to do? Well, some people might try and develop a force field around their house in the form of Internet monitoring uh, to try and keep any intruder out. Uh, Some people might go to a group or call someone uh, like an accountability partner for backup. Uh, And other people just let the intruder come in to ransack various rooms of their house. And so as you can kind of see, it's either trying to keep something at bay 
or you just let yourself indulge in it. And so I think part of the third way that I want to invite people into is what if you went out onto the front porch of your sexual life and you began to interrogate your sexual fantasies, like to ask it questions. Uh, And so uh, part of what my research showed was that our sexual fantasies could be shaped, if not fully predicted, based on the parts of our story that remain unaddressed. Uh, And so one of the things that we found, I'll I'll give you a couple examples and then try and unpack them. Uh, But let's say that you were a man man who wanted to have some level of power over women uh, in your sexual fantasy. So that could be my research looked at people that looked at uh, petite body types, college and teenage porn searches, uh, a race that suggested to someone some level of subservience. Uh, Well, my research said if that was your sexual fantasy, there were three main predictors of that. One, you had a strict father. Two, you were dealing with a, a lack of purpose in your life. And three, you had a very high levels of shame. And so when you begin to unpack some of that story, Uh, something of that fantasy begins to make sense. So if this man had a father who was very rigid, who ruled over him, uh, who was very strict, who used a lot of power over him, and then you're dealing with a a job that you don't like or maybe a dead-end career or maybe you just haven't been able to find work and you're experiencing a lot of lack of purpose and you feel a lot of shame, well, part of the appeal to that type of sexual fantasy is that it's going to give you a realm to reestablish power. So it's really important for us to understand that compulsive sexual behavior is not just about self-medicating. It's not just what we do with boredom. Uh, It's often a lot about power. And so what ends up happening for people who have been powered over and feeling a lot of stuckness in their life is that pornography gives them a realm not just to find relief, but also to reestablish power. Um, Or let's say that you were uh, a woman uh, who had just committed uh, infidelity. Uh, Some of my research looked at what were some of the key drivers of female infidelity. And one of the big ones was that we found that women who felt that their needs were not met in their relationships were 4.7 times more likely to fantasize or engage about infidelity. And so if you can kind of, again, psychologize something of that finding, uh, you know, women are often socialized in our culture to not have needs or to serve the needs of other people, and that becomes very virtuous. And so what ends up happening in their private life is that they begin to develop a fantasy around getting something of their needs met and actually expressing their desires. And so, uh, you know, part of the invitation, I think, of our sexual fantasies is how do we allow our sexual fantasies to be a teacher to us uh, about some of the formative pain and some of the current roadblocks that we don't know how to navigate? And I think that this is uh, going to require a really counterintuitive approach for us, one that doesn't indulge all sexual fantasies, but one that also isn't intimidated and afraid of sexual fantasies either. Uh, and just back to that core premise that your sexual life and fantasies have so much to teach you if you're willing to pay attention. 
Well, and I, I love that because that's part of the process, obviously, uh, of using your experience to grow stronger and also kind of disarming the shame and, and um, all the taboo around mm-hmm. sexual fantasies. Um, so you've really done the research as well as are showing people in the book and I'm going to remind my listening audience, if they tuned in late, I'm talking with Jay Stringer, who wrote Unwanted, How Sexual Be- uh, Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. Um, you could have been a coach, Jay, because that's exactly what coaching is all about. Yes, and I, I mean, I love coaches, um, and I think that there's so much, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> And so, obviously, you did this research, and you found common themes, and you were able to figure out how unwanted sexual behavior morphed into different niches, into different arousal templates, into um, different behaviors. Now, I'm going to ask you to tell me real quick about the shark story. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the shark story is something that I write about in Unwanted, uh, primarily in the shame section of my book. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that often comes up uh, with regard to compulsive sexual behavior is uh, you're going to have to encounter shame. Uh, and oftentimes uh, when people first get into treatment or first have a crisis, it's the shame of your behavior. Uh, but as you begin to kind of go deeper into your own healing process and address some of your wounds, uh, oftentimes it's not just the shame of what you've done, it's also the shame of what has happened to you. And so your mm-hmm. ability to begin to really understand shame and know how to work with it and how to disarm shame is one of the greatest things that you can offer to yourself uh, throughout your recovery journey. And so uh, the, the shark story was there was a, a guy by the name of Andy Casagrande who was uh, interviewed by, uh, I think it was CNN, uh, many years ago. And Andy Casagrande is the videographer for the show Shark Week uh, on the Discovery Channel. And so they interviewed him a couple years ago, and they just said, Andy, like, what do you do when you are in the waters with great white sharks? And so for Andy, I mean, he gets into the, the ocean without a cage, and he swims with great whites. And they said, what do you do? And he said this. He said, it's very counterintuitive, but you swim directly at the shark with the camera. And he said, what ends up happening mm. is that the shark swims to meet the camera, bonks its nose against the camera lens, realizes that it's not food, and then it has a fear response. The shark does. Its amygdala kind of freaks out because it doesn't know what it just encountered, and then it swims off. Because, again, if you think about it, if you're a great white shark, you're used to seeing the tails of almost everything. Everything swims away from you because you're the big great white shark. Uh, And so what Andy says is this profound but simple phrase. He says, if you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And I think that has so much to do to teach us with regard to how to address shame in our lives, both past and present, 
uh, is that we need to begin to swim in the direction of facing our shame stories because most of us try to outrun and outswim our shame stories, uh, but sooner or later uh, we're going to be eaten alive by them. And so part of what we need to begin to do is to turn and face them, uh, to tell other people where we harbor shame, uh, to begin to tell the truth about our sexual fantasies, to tell the truth about our family systems. Uh, and it's really that pattern of being able to turn and face that which is difficult uh, that's at the core work with regard to uh, what we do as healers in this world. Like before I got on the call, Carol, you were talking about like it's not just about healing the wounds, but it's also that question of where are you going to go after you heal? And for so many mm -hmm. people that begin to get their lives back together again, it doesn't mean that you don't have to face difficulties. But all of the stuff that you learned, all of the exercises, all of the strength, all of the vulnerability that you learned in this recovery process will actually give you the, you know, the muscle groups that you're going to need to be able to develop a life of purpose and passion. And so uh, I think it's just that invitation of we're always going to have to face really difficult, scary things, uh, both things that we have caused, but also really significant things that are going to happen to us in life. And the more that we can get in a pattern of swimming at our shame and swimming at those accusations, uh, the better we're going to set ourselves up, uh, not just for recovery, but life. Yes, and self-acceptance. And, you know, since we're quoting Dr. Carnes, one of the things he said on my podcast is that, obviously, great suffering leads to transformation, and transformation leads to giving back. And that's really what you're talking about. Um, and I can really appreciate that model. And for me, when I talked with him, I said, what is the number one thing that I can do to help men and women heal from problematic sexual behavior. And he said very clearly, start groups. Get as many crosstalk groups together as you can because obviously shame is so hard to conquer by yourself. And if you're with other men and women who can talk about it, sometimes if you're not there yet, they can be your role models. And if you are the role model, it can fortify uh, your giving back. So I really yeah. believe yeah. in that process as well as individual therapy um, and bibliotherapy. And so, Jay Stringer, thank you so much for writing this book. I recommend all my listening audience as well as my clients to get unwanted. Again, that is how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing. It is the Bible of research, I think, right now. And so congrats on putting this together and making such a, a difference in this field and for men and women everywhere. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. That means a lot. And, I mean, it, it is such an honor to collaborate with you um, to be able to invite people to this conversation. So thank you for your boldness and willingness to, to go into these waters. Well, thank you. And you thank Drew Boa, who was my contact person. I said, oh, yeah. Drew, you've got, to, you've got to get this interview for me because this book has changed the lives of everyone. Again, I invite everyone to read this book, Unwanted. 
You make it a good day, and let's talk again in 2021, okay? Sounds great. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. For more sex help with Carol the Coach. Um, don't forget, there'll only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week, and we'll see you next Monday for more sex help with Carol the Coach.